Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. One of the evergreen and unfortunate aspects of our world today is the constant reminder of the challenge of conflict in the Middle East and the challenge ongoing of radical Islam and those who want to create terror in the name of it. Obviously, what's going on in the Middle East and challenges there have been long-standing and well predate whatever happened on 9-11, but those issues have become ever more acute in domestic American politics and domestic European politics and global. That being said, there's a lot more going on in the Middle East and there's a lot more going on within the world of Islam than the bleeding edge of the sword, which is what we focus on. So in the spirit of that, I thought it'd be fascinating to talk with one of my uh, oldest friends, long-standing Middle East expert Stephen Cook, who is the ENI Enrico Mattei Senior Fellow for Middle East and African Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He is particularly versed in Turkish politics, Egyptian politics, speaks Arabic, speaks Turkish, has a PhD from the University of Pennsylvania, is the author of several books, including False Dawn, Protest, Democracy, and Violence in the Middle East, The Struggle for Egypt from Nasser to Tahrir Square, and ruling but not governing the military and political development in Egypt, Algeria, and Turkey. He is widely published, widely quoted, and often turned to by various and sundry for his expertise, his acumen, and his insights about what's going on in the Middle East today, what's going on in the world of Islam, and how that all can be reconciled with the emergence of a global middle class and the roiling challenges that that creates. So with that, here's my conversation with Stephen Cook. So Stephen, the general gist of these conversations that I'm having with various and sundry people is what could go right, which is not to say that there isn't a whole lot that could go wrong, because as we know, there is indeed a whole lot that can go wrong. And in your particular area of expertise, Turkey, Egypt, the Middle East writ large, ISIS, 
terrorism, all these lovely, challenging issues that we are beset with monthly, weekly, daily, yearly, not exactly a panoply of positivity. That being said, what what do you, is there is there are there silver linings here? Are there things that we're not paying enough attention to, or is the general sense of going to hell in a handbasket an accurate one? Well, you know that is the the general sense, and people always say in, in the Middle East it could always get worse, and and that's a frame um, that Middle East analysts often use, and and it's important actually to try to think outside of that because surprising things happen. Uh, we had a frame of reference um, about Egypt succession uh, in the years before the Egyptian uprising. And we, it, everybody believed it was either going to be the president's second son, Gamal Mubarak, or the president's intelligence chief, Omar Suleiman. It turned out to be neither of them because there was an uprising and no one could really imagine. So I think the question about what could go right is an important one. And I think there's a, there's a couple of obvious ones. Uh, what could go right? Um, Tunisia could go right. Tunisia is widely perceived to be, uh, sometimes erroneously, as having made a successful transition to democracy. I think Tunisia is neither a success nor a failure, but it has the makings of a success uh, in terms of a, a genuine consolidation of democracy. Right. I mean, it has a multi somewhat of a multi-party system. I'm going to interrupt you a moment for a quick non-sequitur story. So in uh, December 2009, I'm thinking, okay, I want to go on an exciting family vacation. I, I know, know something about the Middle East, obviously not nearly on par with you. We decide to go to Tunisia because I'm thinking middle-class country, small, somewhat manageable. It's got a bunch of Star Wars sites. We can go to Tatooine. Right. My son can think, oh, cool, I went to where Star Wars was filmed. What could possibly happen, right? It's, it's got some French beach resorts. You know, it's 10 months before self-immolation and revolution. But, you know, it was a funny moment of, ah, we'll just go to Tunisia. It's fine. <laughs> right. what, could, what could happen? What could go wrong? I bet you had a good time, too. I mean, it's got beautiful beaches and wonderful things to see, and the people are nice, and, you know, the fresh fish right out of the Mediterranean can't be beat. Right. So um, it has a lot of things going for it. Tunisia also happens to produce a, a lot of extremists. doesn't have much in the way of an economy beyond uh, tourism. But still, it does have, um, it does have some uh, advantages. So certainly Tunisia can... Uh, can go right. Um, surprisingly, you know, uh, Egypt is another place where certain things can go right um, that may down the road uh, serve to, to stabilize a country. Now, it's, that's, you know, that's an odd thing to say, given the kind of massive wave of repression that uh, Egyptians have been subjected to since 2013, uh, this recent incident where uh, the Egyptian military essentially walked into a trap in Wahat out in the in, in the western desert and and 53 soldiers were killed. Um, but for all of the problems that uh, Egypt has encountered, um, it has, despite everybody's expectations, faithfully implemented the IMF program that it had agreed to. Um, generally, in the past. Egyptians have agreed to IMF programs. They've uh, adhered to them for a number of months, and then it got too hard, and, and they stepped away from them. 
uh, Egyptians are continuing with it. They're, impo- they're, they're applying a lot of pain on the population. Uh, as we get closer to uh, Sisi's re-election campaign, we'll see whether they ease up on it. But thus far, the combination of, and I'm sorry to say, the combination of, of repression uh, in, has kind of steeled the determination of, uh, of Egyptian decision makers to continue to, to move forward with the economy. So that, you know, there is the potential for, for Egypt to progress, at least on that on that one track. And then what about um, the big the big question of Saudi Arabia? Obviously, you've got a new crown prince. Right. You know, he's young, he's energetic. I guess his detractors say that he's autocratic and arrogant. Mohammed bin Salman, the, the new crown prince, uh, has many detractors. My, my view has been Saudis should hope that Mohammed bin Salman grows into the job. Um, by the way, there's, you know, rumors that uh, he is going to uh, become king sooner rather than later, that King Salman will visit Washington in early 2018, and then sometime soon after his return from Washington, he'll abdicate, and Mohammed bin Salman will be the king. Um, There is a lot of change afoot in Saudi Arabia. Uh, You know, I'm not prepared to give them credit for women driving. They're the last country on earth for, you know, to allow that. Uh, women recently have been given permission to attend soccer matches. Uh, again, not willing to give them credit for it. But at the same time, um, there seems to be a recognition within the Saudi leadership that they can't continue to to, you know, to, to travel the same path as the past. And so perhaps this loosening of, of social restrictions will uh, unleash uh, half the population, invite greater uh, foreign investment. Uh, and, and with that, uh, Saudi Arabia can move not completely because it never will be able to move completely, but can move uh, towards a, a more diversified economy. Now, that's a, you know, I'm really stretching things here. You know, this is, I'm, I'm grasping for straws and what could be, because thus far the, the Saudi view of, of diversifying the economy is unloading state assets and then allowing, you know, state controlled investment pools to, to invest in them. And that's somehow the, the private sector. Right. And you're going to get this massive initial public offering sometime in early 2018 of Saudi Aramco, right? The world's, right. I, I guess you could say it's the world's largest oil company, right? Maybe PetroChina. Right. the goose that laid the golden egg for, uh, for the royal family. But presumably they're doing this simply because there will be X number of global investors who will put X hundreds of billions of dollars into this offering. They'll have no governance. They'll have no, it's not like they're going to it won't be a publicly run company in the sense of shareholders are not going to suddenly you know, be calling right. the shots for Aramco, but it will be a way of generating some coin. Right. The, the default is always, you know, to, to be critical and to, to take these things with a, with a grain of salt, given the fact that we always believe that things can always get worse in, in, in the Middle East. But there's the possibility that these things can, you know, work out quite well. I, you know, I had tweeted when uh, when they announced that women could uh, attend football matches and said, you know, we shouldn't give the Saudis trophies for coming in last or near last. And, I, you know, generated 
uh, a, a fair amount of response from Saudis themselves who said, you know what, we're not asking for trophies. We're just happy that uh, things are changing in a positive direction. And, you know, you got to give them you got to give them that. Let's let's hope it works out. So what what is it about uh, places like Saudi Arabia and obviously Dubai, a little bit Abu Dhabi, a little bit Qatar, where you have these oil rich states that decide to build these visionary cities of tomorrow. So this really began with Dubai. You know, we're going to build Internet City and we're going to build Education City and we're going to build, I don't know, like the new city. And now the Saudis and uh, Prince Mohammed have said, we're going to build, what, what is it, Neom, which I suppose is Neom, just, just right. a neologism, right? It's, it's like a name. Yeah. There was a $500 billion affixed price tag. Where does that come from, do you think, that, that impulse? Yeah, it's it's really interesting. By the way, the city is supposed to have be have more robots than people, which huh. uh, led me to joke it'll be the mecca of robots. Bada bing, <laughs> bada boom, bada, bada bing. I'll be here yeah. all weekend, folks. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, as you point out, it started out with with Dubai. Uh, Abu Dhabi is starting to catch up. Uh, Doha is is also one of these cities in which there is this kind of importation of you know, American universities, film festivals, museums, this kind of idea that this part of the world, that in the Gulf, that they, they, they're missing something uh, and that with the large amounts of money, they can kind of import this stuff and, and presto, create uh, classes of Qatari scientists and Emirati scientists and through this kind of top-down social engineering, um, they can forge a, a genuinely 21st century society and skip over uh, a long path of development that, has, uh, that, that we observe in, in the West. And, and perhaps they are able to do that. Um, but I think that, you know, it, this is the perfect example of the problems associated with this are actually in Saudi Arabia. Because when, when Crown Prince Mohammed announced this new city, Neom, the, the mecca of robots, I laughed because I remember being at the Jeddah Economic Forum in 2006, and all the talk was all of the new cities that the Saudis were building. Uh, and they were going to build a city that was going to be a hub for logistics. They really like the, people in, the, in that region really like the word hub. A hub for logistics, a hub for science, a hub for this, a hub for that. And then on subsequent visits, went to see what was called King Abdullah Economic City. And these these plans, and and they actually started building King Abdullah Economic City, which was near King Abdullah uh, University of Science and Technology, which have turned out to really be white elephants. Uh, and I, I think that they've perhaps been more successful in places smaller places in the Gulf than in Saudi Arabia. But there is this desire to leverage this wealth. There's, there's, there's an understanding that they don't have this – they have tremendous human resources, but they don't have the human resources necessary to, on their own, uh, develop uh, their societies, to, to have world-class science, to – you know, these are countries that, you know – Expats have built, engineered, uh, it, it, and I think in Saudi Arabia in particular, it comes from the idea that Aramco, Saudi Aramco, played an incredibly important role 
in, in state building. Uh, and when the government didn't have the capacity to do something, they turned to Saudi Aramco uh, to do it. And I think it comes from a, a similar kind of it, – it's those experiences that, that have led them down this road. So I wonder – you know, it's an interesting question of rulers from at least the past several hundred years, probably forever, have done this. I mean the czars were big in – we didn't have any culture. We had a lot of money, or at least we had a lot of power. So we're gonna we're going to buy, import, and recreate French culture in right. St. Petersburg. And uh, you know the 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 Japanese did this with the Chinese. I mean, there's a long legacy of rulers saying, "Well, we don't have this homegrown, but we have this other proximate culture that we can purchase and import." Does it really? I mean, it's like Dubai. I've been to Dubai a bunch of times. I still can't figure out, other than the fact that there are a lot of big buildings, there seem to be a million people from around the world doing business of one form or another, real estate deals, commerce, making stuff. It's very hard to tell whether any of these projects, other than the fact that there's some physical manifestation of them, it's hard to tell whether there's any real cultural manifestation of them. I mean, just what do you think? Right. Is that can you plant a Louvre in Dubai or Abu Dhabi? Um, or a MoMA in these places um, and have these incredible works of art. And are you generating, uh, are you generating kind of culture? Um, obviously that's not to say that, that there's no culture in these, in these places. What's odd is that there is less of a celebration of culture that is indigenous to the area than this kind of idea that we're going to import it and by dint of importing great works, we can also at the same time alongside of it highlight our own uh, kind of cultural achievements and, 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 and things along those lines rather than just doing it. And it's strange. I, I haven't quite gotten to the, to, the, to the bottom of this, but there is a lot of excitement about bringing these kinds of things to, uh, to, uh, to that part of the world. Now, let's also not discount the fact that you have a bunch of leaders in the region who dis- dislike each other to varying degrees. So that, you know, there has been this competition. Well, you know, the Maktoum family has built up Dubai, and so the Afani in Doha are going are gonna to try to match that and exceed it. And then as power has shifted in the United Arab Emirates, the al Nahyan family in Abu Dhabi is now doing these kinds of things. And then the Saudis are saying, well, you know, when they built uh, King Abdullah Economic City, there was this whole kind of commerce aspect of it. They're, they were like, we're going to rival Dubai. And so there is this kind of competition. So it may not be, it may, it may not be anything more than kind of thumbing one's nose to a ruler just across the way and saying, hey, I, I built a Louvre here. What do you got? Yeah, right. um, which is you know, and seems to me an enormous waste of money. It's like if the Hatfields uh, and the McCoys had each had tens of billions of dollars with, without guns and had been trying to sort of one up each other each time. Right. It's. I mean, the question then is: all these things are happening in the Gulf. That's where, I guess, Donald Trump's first big state visit was to go to Saudi Arabia as a sign of you know something, and uh, you have these sort of modernizing. Ish, I guess you could argue whether or not they're really modernizing or whether they're just buying some of the patina of modernity with petrodollars. And then you have Egypt, which 
may or may not be beginning to do the economic reform that hasn't been done for decades, even though it's under an incredibly autocratic government. And then you have kind of the rest. I mean, you've you've looked a lot at Turkey, and which has had one of the weirder trajectories, I think, in recent yeah. memory. Although, you know, having gone from this sort of reformist, prosperous, almost joining the European Union, or at least making some forays to joining the European Union, you have Erdogan comes into power 15 plus years ago, seeming to be a kind of a kinder, gentler, democratic form of an Islamic government, you know, that he was going to be more like a European Christian socialist, and it was going right. to prove out that point. And for a decade, uh, that's what seemed to be happening, right? Yeah. So what What the hell happened? I mean, it, it yeah. everything seemed to be going so well. Again, this is the ignorant outsider question. It looked like things were going pretty well. And then, boom, it makes this right. hard turn into kind of a nasty, brutish, difficult place. Yeah, well, you know, uh, Turkey began formal negotiations to join the European Union in March of 2005. And, you know, by now it was supposed to be close to European Union membership, but it looks less like a liberal European democracy and more like an elected autocracy and one of the most repressive governments uh, in the region. I mean, you know, the purge that has been underway, that that everybody has focused on since the failed coup d'etat in July 2016, is really just an acceleration of a purge that had been underway for the previous couple of years. So there's this kind of reign of terror going on in Turkey right now, and it is this, this weird trajectory. I'd say that Things were going pretty well. Uh, there are those, in all fairness, there are those analysts of Turkey and Turks who say, you know, this outcome is exactly what Erdogan had planned. Uh, he was never a Democrat. Uh, they dismissed the European Union reforms of 2003 and 2004 as a way of shunting aside opponents of uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan and his Justice and Development Party, namely the military, which had been a what they, these people consider to be a check on 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 the system, although a hardly democratic system. And um, those who say, "Hey, no, look, you know, there were genuine reforms and things were looking good," and then things changed when Erdogan perceived, and I think quite rightly, that. The establishment, the traditional establishment, the, the Kemalist secular Republicans weren't ever going to let the Justice and Development Party govern the country. Um, so there was the effort and what was essentially a coup in May 2007 when the military said Abdullah Gul, the then foreign minister, couldn't become the president of the country because his wife wears hijab. And then coming not long after that, revelations uh, that, and, and this ultimately became a conspiracy within a conspiracy, but revelations that uh, people were plotting against uh, the government, were, were seeking to, to destabilize Turkey so it would encourage the military to move in with, with a coup d'etat and end this Islamist experiment in governance. And then 
after that plot was found out, the the the, the government and its then partners among uh, 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 another Islamist group, the Gulen movement, which has been in the news a lot, uh, it, used that conspiracy to to take down their own opponents in a kind of wide ranging crackdown based on fabricated evidence, et cetera. But then then the prosecutor, the state prosecutors, tried to brought charges against the Justice and Development Party saying that it was a, a, a center of anti-secular activity, which is the way in which its predecessor parties were closed. And the, and the Constitutional Court actually concluded that it was a center of anti-secular activities, but didn't have enough votes in the court to actually close the party, so it was fined $20 million. And, and so the succession of things clearly convinced Erdogan that he could not be magnanimous in victory. Now, mind you, I'm not making excuses for him. But he could not be magnanimous in victory and sought to, to crush uh, his opponents. He's now taken that to a, 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 a kind of crazy degree with this, with this purge, which has ensnared more than 200,000 people. And when you do the multiplier effect, you're talking about, you know, a million people or so. Uh, and so, you know, Turkey is one of those cases where that used to be the silver lining in the region. And it's hard to imagine uh, much positive coming from Turkey re- uh, in, in a foreseeable future. So it raises this question, right? The, the trajectory of Turkey from 2005, as you say, begins negotiations for the European Union, seems to be uh, reaching a takeoff level of economic growth, of middle class emergence, a lot of exports. Turkey was a big export place. Big export, a big trading state. Yeah. A lot of foreign money was pouring in to invest in. It was seen as an, you know, an attractive place, uh, a safe yep. place, a welcoming, you name it. And then boom, you know, 11, 12 years later, you have this, as you say, incredibly powerful autocratic system revolving around one individual, Erdogan in this case. Now you have, it's interesting, in Eastern Europe, you have some mini-me echoes of this. So you have Orhan in Hungary also had been doing quite well and yet turning radically toward a more autocratic system. You have some of the same thing maybe going on in Poland. And I guess it raises this whole question. You know, we've thought a lot about this in the United States with the unexpected outcome of the 2016 election and the victory of Trump. Are these Was that story wrong, right? It seemed like the middle class right. was emerging. It seemed like some of the wonders of globalization and trade and was was enriching and leading to a level of self-confidence. And yet even in these countries, in Poland and Hungary, were seen as some of the bright spots, in, even during the financial crisis, as was Turkey. You have this really sharp di- move away from that path. So I guess the question is, on a more philosophical level, were we wrong about that narrative, right? Was it just like a good story? Or was it true in Turkey, for instance? Was it just really Istanbul and the touristy right. coast, and then everybody else? It was it was like well, looking at that story, going, "Give me a break." Right. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna be that social scientist for a moment um, and say that it does deserve a significant amount of new research. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. 
Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. significant amount of new research because we were operating under the assumption based on social science research that when countries reach a certain level of GDP per capita, that it's virtually impossible for them to transition from democracy to an authoritarian system. And Turkey reached that level in the mid 2000s, unless it was fake, unless it was just as you point out, in the, in the you know, western, the megalopolis of Istanbul and the western part of the country. Although everybody at the time marveled at what was called the Anatolian Tigers, these companies that were doing extraordinarily well that were based in central Anatolia, in Kayseri, in Konya, in, in, in places that were the kind of heart uh, and, and soul of the Justice and Development Party. And, you know, I know less about Eastern Europe than I do about Turkey and the Middle East. But again, it seems like the situation in Poland and the situation in Hungary deserves uh, further research in that the, the data sets um, that were famous and important in the 1990s for, for graduate students in political science like myself, um, which demonstrated this idea that at certain levels of GDP – uh, countries don't slide backwards, uh, may, at least and, you know, based on these few observations, not be as accurate as we thought. Uh, it, does, it does challenge some of these, these uh, you know, tightly held ideas about the way in which the world works. Look, I've thought about this for years, of the problem of social sciences thinking of themselves too much as science and not enough as social, and that the reality of social is that everything kind of is in flux. We just pointed right, this out. I agree with 2005, you. You know, we thought X, and only 11 years later. I mean, I try to point out to people all the time, as much as we may, may be contemporarily immersed in a world where the challenge of radical Islam or certain types of radical Islam seem ubiquitous and permanent and deeply, deeply entrenched, you know, 40 years ago, or even less than that, when you and I started thinking about these things a lot in the 1990s, it was still sort of a marginal, I don't know, maybe kind of thing. You know, the Iranian right. revolution happened in 1979. It's not as if there was then this huge wave that everyone wondered might be coming. In fact, there was no wave at the time. And so right. things change really, really quickly. The problem is our frameworks don't adapt nearly as quickly to the pace of that kind of change. I, I think that that's 100% right. And I agree with you as a political scientist uh, that uh, 
we sometimes, oftentimes, most of the time, um, do overlook exactly what you said, that social aspect of it, um, and that we really, you know, we can approximate science, but I think we often don't pay enough attention to the importance of ideas uh, and worldview, which is funny because we're supposed to be, you know, thinking about the social world and political developments and, and aren't ideas incredibly important. And so to give you one example of this, uh, it was last winter, I believe, that the, the Turkish lira was, was sliding in value. And, and Erdogan, over the course of the last five years, has been blaming international bankers and the interest rate lobby and all that he's been essentially setting the environment so that when the lira did slide or there were other economic problems that he and successive Turkish governments were not to blame for it. It was the role of outsiders. So the, the lira was sliding and losing value. And he called on people to burn dollars, to burn dollars. And people went out and did. And it was out of this idea of, you know, Turkish dignity and nationalism that it was important for these people to, to actually burn dollars. Now, was it the whole country? Did the whole country go out in the streets and throw dollars into, into you know, garbage pails and burn them? No, but, but people were moved by this. And I think that, again, this slide, this change, um, is we haven't given enough emphasis on ideas, populist ideas, uh, cultural grievances. You know, you can't say culture in, in, social science, in American social science these days, but there's something about these issues that we have overlooked and we're clearly missing a part of the story. Yeah, I mean, the other challenge, of course, of the science part of all this is scientists can do controlled experiments in a lab. Right. They, can, they can replace variables. They can have a constant. They can tweak to try to figure out which is the most determinative or how one interacts with the other. We don't get to replay the historical tape. We don't get right. to go, what if the Europeans in 2005 had been more welcoming of Turkey, right? There was a lot of resistance right. on the other side, too, that kind of fueled some of this counter-reaction of... Right. I will give a shout-out to uh, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania named Ian Lustig, who has developed this, this program. It's something called agent-based modeling, where he can run different futures of countries based on certain, you know, uh, criteria that he can change and he can, he can, you know, approximate what, what might happen. And it's been a, a, a powerful tool, but of course it still has its limits based on what the inputs are and so on and so forth. But it's, it's, it's very, very interesting. Oh, that's kind of cool. So wait, you can like, you can, you can type in Munich 1938 and, and replace Neville Chamberlain with Winston Churchill and see what happened if Hitler <laughs> fell and... Is, is not it, quite like that, but oh, you can say, you can you That's can develop, the program I want. <laughs> you can develop things like, you know, Syria, and then take all of these different kind of variables and switch them up and change them around and try to figure out how it might evolve given certain, given, given these, uh, these inputs. And then from there, you can, you can learn, you know, what might be a better policy than the policy that we, we have now. It's a, very, it's a very, very cool thing. And I think that's, you know, the, 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 the computing power and the ability to, to manage information gives the, uh, you know, some advantage to the science part of things, uh, especially with the work that, that Lustig is doing. At the same time, uh, again, you're, the larger point that we're, we're getting at here is that uh, 
we thought that the data would tell us something about the way the world works when it comes to uh, the consolidation of democracy. And it really hasn't. And that opens a whole host of questions about, you know, ideas, culture, nationalism, uh, and, and what that means for democracies around the world, including our own. Well, right. We have the same question here now. I mean, in the United States, and I guess to some degree with the whole Brexit uh, debacle in the UK, part of the way that we've squared the circle of this question of, wait, we thought with greater prosperity, there'd be more inclusiveness, more openness, right. less nationalism, all these things. Part of the way we've explained that, and I think a legitimate one is, you know, the who's we question, meaning, right. yes, it, it, as a generalized statement, you could say the United States is the most prosperous country in the world, probably the most prosperous country, certainly at size that has ever existed. The UK, even as the British might have lost their empire, was hardly, you know, way down the ranks of, of uh, human suffering. So, right. but there were a lot of people who weren't doing well in that. And that's where, you know, you wonder about Turkey, right? Was it, If it was all coastal, but the center wasn't doing so well, or if, you know, in Egypt... Cairo elites were fine and sort of felt themselves to be part of the youth movement was really just a youth movement of of educated, internet savvy people. But you still had 20 million people living by the banks of the Nile in a world that looked right. much more like 1920 right. than 2020. I mean, does that explain some of it? Just that 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 the I, we I that there's no we here. Well, that's what we need. I think that's what we need to look into next. Um, because I give you another example. We'll go back to we'll go back to the UK. I have a, a good friend who's a, a, a British Egyptian Egyptian British doctor. She was born in Egypt. She's now a Brit, and she practices medicine in Wigan, uh, which I think is near Birmingham. I've actually never I've never seen her there. I've only seen her in in London. And you know when I was we were emailing about Brexit. And she said to me, you know, you all think that the entirety of the UK is like London. She's like, let me tell you something. It's completely, completely different from what you experience when you land in Heathrow and you spend three, four days doing meetings in London. It's a completely different country from what you imagine. Uh, and she's told me, you know, given her Egyptian background, she's told me about the kind, this question of we and who are we among you know, Brits outside of the, you know, the London metropole. Uh, and she herself has faced uh, kind of racism because her, her left, you know, she could, she looks like she could be British, but her last name is Mahmoud. And so, you know, patients not wanting to, you know, be treated by her because she's because of her last name. And so there, is, there are these dynamics about who are we and what it means to be. And I think, again, that the elite, belief that globalization and rising incomes everywhere would make for everybody have a stake in the system. I think at this, you know, early in the stage of, of our kind of thinking about this might have been a miscalculation. So let's go and sort of wrap up in the realm of pure speculation. So if we're having okay. this conversation 10 or 12 years from now, let's say we, we reconvene in 2030. And, and I say, <laughs> Stephen, how are you? I will come in with my walker. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the feedback from your hearing aid will have to readjust the levels. 
Or maybe there'll be an implant then you won't need to have a hearing aid. Right, exactly. So what kind of conversation are we having about what we've just had? I mean, what, are we, what conversation are we having about Turkey? What conversation are we having about terrorism and ISIS? Or if you put your finger in the air and you think about the arc, how do you think about it? The temptation is to say, you know, given what we've experienced, and it's over a longer period than the last 16 years since the attacks on New York and Washington in, in September 2001, it's the temptation is to say, well, yes, there's something will come after ISIS and something will come after that something that comes after ISIS and we'll be living with this. And I certainly think in the in the relative short run, you know, as ISIS it has suffered defeat, it becomes something else. Uh, and we will be living with this for the foreseeable future. But I also at the same time, I think that the the theological and political battle has been joined by a lot of people in the Middle East uh, that there and the Muslim world more generally, that there are people of goodwill who reject these interpretations and have become fearful that the rest of the world fears Muslims and have begun to push back in a variety of different ways uh, on social media uh, in satire, in uh, television, in all kinds of media, uh, in everyday life, people are pushing back on this on this uh, question of who gets to interpret Islam and who gets to frame the terms of the debate uh, in Islam. And I think, you know, with groups like the Muslim Brotherhood being on the defensive and others, and, and not necessarily framing the terms of the debate in, in societies like Egypt, much of that has to do with repression. And I don't want to say that, you know, a little bit of repression goes a long way, but there certainly is a, a, a flowering of a debate that may uh, about and, and push back against these darker interpretations of Islam that may have a positive effect on these societies. You know, we're on the, what, you know, this is the 500th anniversary of, uh, of Martin Luther, you know, his, his 95 theses, and there's all kinds of stuff about Islam needs a, re a reformation. I, I can't stand that kind of thing. But uh, there is this dynamic underway in the Muslim world. Abdul Fattah Sisi took a lot, of, uh, a lot of criticism from his opponents by going before the clerics in Al-Azhar and saying, we, we really need to rethink what we've been doing. Um, and he, a, a lot of praise from from the right in the United States and in Europe. I think in a way, I, I think the both were undeserved. I think what CC was calling for is kind of impossible in an environment of repression that he himself has has overseen. Uh, but at the same time, he was onto something that there there needs to be a, a reexamination and a and a pushback on uh, on these interpretations. And I'm I'm kind of hopeful about that. That's one of those things that could go right um, that I didn't mention earlier in our conversation. That I, I, I believe that, there, that, that that battle of ideas has been joined and it could potentially win. And do you think, I mean, obviously from your vantage point and, and the role you have, you can, you're positioned to communicate some of that, you know, to, to inform people that these debates are going on. This is not like a static situation. It's not completely black and white. Uh, it's right. not, you know, there's no, it's not a existential clash of civilizations. It's more of an ongoing, all right, how are we going to grapple with whatever the hell modernity means? How are we going to 
figure out meeting our citizens' needs in a way that is more inclusive. And I think it also would have, you know, this, I, I like to lay this on people when I'm giving talks because I think it has a, a feedback on the United States and the way in which people think about the Middle East and the Muslim world here in the United States. You, know, you go into a, a room of well-educated, well-informed people, and some of them at least believe that, you know, Islam is just hostile at its kind of basis, that it's hostile and that there is something theological about Islam and violence. Now, there, there is, I, I do believe that, that ISIS is a manifestation of, of theology. But at the same time, they're surprised to hear that there's this, you know, conversation going on uh, in, in, in the Arab and, and Muslim worlds about, uh, about extremism. And I think that that you know, a lot of the kind of populism, a lot of what President Trump played on during his uh, his campaign was this fear of uh, of Muslims. And, you know, the, we got to figure out what's going on here and the Muslim ban and, and all, all kinds of things. I think that the more and more people know about this and if, in fact, these people in the in the Middle East are, are successful in this, um, it has a dynamic effect on the kind of discourse that we have here. Uh, of course, you know, attacks in the streets in Europe or the United States don't don't help matters. No, it certainly does not help. That being said, it's probably a good thing for this issue that we haven't had a repeat of 9-11, certainly not in, in the scale. I mean, if that if there is something like that that comes in the future, it will certainly be a massive setback to this conversation. That's that's the kind of thing that I, I fear, you know, we have some sort of mass attack like that, huge numbers of casualties, and what our political system will then produce is, I think, cause for concern. I, I, I don't think that we understand how much our domestic politics and our foreign policy has changed since September 11. Uh, and how deeply traumatic that event is. So what is the next step to that? Uh, I think we should be uh, concerned uh, if that were to come to pass. So let us hope and pray that it does not. Certainly as someone who uh, lives in Manhattan and as someone like you who lives in Washington, it's (laughs) even more something to pray and hope that it does not come to pass uh, and that it has not yet come to pass is something that we can be quite thankful for. Stephen, yeah. thank you so much for your your wisdom and insights. And Oh, this has been a lot of fun. I'm sure we will uh, try to reconvene before 2030. <laughs> I hope so. To muse about what the hell is going on in the world. So, thanks very much, Stephen. Alright, my friend. Thanks so much. Okay. Take care. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.